the next episode of Nefarious New York. I'm here with Meredith. Hello. And we are in Chicago. 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 At the True Crime Podcast Festival. So we're going to do it a little bit different, and we're going to focus on a Chicago case. And it just so happens that a very famous Chicago case happened on this. There's sirens. We don't have soundproofing in our hotel room. We are doing this from the hotel room. The background noise is just... What you're getting. What you're getting. Anyway, so there was a very famous Chicago case that happened on this night in 1966. And what's today's date? July 13th, 1966. So we thought it was appropriate to cover that. So anything else? No, just uh, we're having a really good time, and we met a lot of great people downstairs. Yes, we and, did. And um, a lot of people who were super nice to us, and so we're going to try to bang this episode out so we can then go down to the mixer. Okay, so now we're going to be serious because okay. we're talking go about ahead. crime. Okay. So 52 years ago on this very night in South Chicago around 11 p.m., Corazon Amoreo a 23-year-old nursing student from the Philippines was asleep in her bedroom with two other nursing students. She woke up when someone knocked on her door. She unlocked and opened the door to see a tall man dressed in black with a pockmarked face. He was pointing a gun at her. He took her and the two other Filipino nurses, Merlita Gargiulo, 23 years old, and Valentina Passion, 24, and three American-born students who were in the other room. Pamela Wilkening, 20, Pat Matusik, 20, and Nina Jo Schmail, 24. Okay, so somehow Amareo, Gargiulo, and Passion managed to break away and hide in a closet. A short time later, Amareo said one of the other nurses asked the girls to come out of the closet. She said the stranger was not going to hurt them. All he wanted was money for a trip to New Orleans. When the three nurses came out of the closet, they found the man and the American nurses sitting in a circle on the floor. He was holding a gun on them. Other dorm residents, Gloria Davy, 22, Marianne Jordan, 20, and Suzanne Farris, 21, walked in on the hostage scene later and immediately became part of it. The women thought he was going to take their money and leave until he pulled out a knife and started ripping bed sheets into strips. Mm. He used those strips to bind the hands and feet and gag the women. So, let me just, so I can... Wait. Is he by himself? Yes. And he's, I guess he's in control because he's got the gun, but there's a lot more, there, of, them. more of them than there is of him. But I but, guess they don't want to risk it if they think he's just of course. Right. taking money and leaving. It, he, right. Okay. They don't know. So, Amoreo was able to roll under a bed. She listened as one by one, seven of the women were taken into another room, brutalized and killed. Oh. She remained still and silent as the killer raped and murdered his last victim, Davy, in the same room where she was hiding. About four and a half hours after it started, he walked out the door and disappeared. Miraculously, he overlooked Amareo. She was just five foot two and 100 pounds, so she was able to stay hidden under the bed. A couple of hours later, she freed her hands and feet and ran from the house. Just before 6 a.m. on July 14, 1966, residents of a South Chicago neighborhood woke to the sounds of her screams. So fingerprints found at the scene in Amoreo's detailed description helped police connect the crime to Richard Speck. Also men that Speck was drinking with a couple of nights after the murder 
were able to identify him from a sketch the police had put in the newspapers. Okay. So can you just tell us a bit about Richard Speck? Sure. So, so Richard Benjamin Speck was born in Kirkwood, Illinois, on the day before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, which was December 6th, 1941, and he was one of eight children. Uh, he was very close to his father, who died in 1947 from a heart attack at the age of 53, and Speck was six years old at the time. A few years later, Speck's religious teetotaler mother married Carl Lindbergh on May 10th, 1950. Now, I didn't know what teetotaler meant, but you told me it meant someone who doesn't drink alcohol? Correct. Okay. So Lindbergh was a drunk with a 25-year criminal record that started with forgery, and included several arrests for drunk driving, and he was the opposite of Speck's sober, hardworking father. To make matters worse, his eldest brother, Robert, died at the age of 23 in 1952. Speck moved with his mom and his stepfather and his sister, Carolyn, to 10 addresses in poor neighborhoods in Texas over the next dozen years. So that's that's a lot of moving around and... Uh, Speck loathed his often drunk and frequently absent stepfather who psychologically abused him with insults and threats. Speck, who was a poor student, needed glasses for reading, but refused to wear them. He struggled through Dallas public schools from fourth grade through eighth grade and then repeated eighth grade and dropped out of school just after his 16th birthday. So it's, it's not looking good for Speck No, right not now. a good start. Um, he started drinking alcohol at the age of 12, and by the age of 15, he was getting drunk almost every day. His first arrest was in 1955 at the age of 13, and that was for trespassing, and there were dozens more over the next eight years. In October of 1961, Speck met 15-year-old Shirley Annette Malone at the Texas State Fair. She became pregnant after three weeks of dating him, and they got married on January 19, 1962. His daughter was born on July 5, 1962, while he was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace. This guy is uh, bad news. Mm -hmm. So in 1963, Speck is now 21 years old. Uh, he was convicted of forgery and burglary and sentenced to three years in prison. He was paroled after serving 16 months. After his parole, at 2.20 a.m. on January 9, 1965, Speck was wielding a 17-inch carving knife when he attacked a woman in the parking lot of her apartment building. He fled when the woman screamed, and the police arrived within minutes and apprehended Speck a few blocks away. Speck was convicted of aggravated assault, given a 16-month sentence to run concurrently with a parole violation sentence and returned to prison. But due to an error, he was released from prison just six months later, on July 2nd, 1965. And during one of his prison stays, he got a tattoo on his left forearm that read, Born to Raise Hell. After his release from prison, Speck worked for three months as a truck driver and he had six accidents with his truck before he was fired for failing to show up for work. I'm surprised I didn't fire him before that, mm. but... In Maybe after accident number three? Yeah. In December of 1965, Speck, who at this time was separated from his wife, moved in with a 29-year-old divorced woman who needed someone to babysit her three children. 
Bad choice, bad choice. Yeah, you think? In January 1966, Speck's wife filed for divorce. That same month, Speck stabbed a man in a knife fight at a bar. He was charged with aggravated assault, but a defense attorney hired by his mother was able to get the charge reduced to disturbing the peace. Speck was fined $10 and jailed for three days after he failed to pay the fine. What the heck? Um, On March 5th, 1966, Speck bought a 12-year-old car. The following evening, he robbed a grocery store and then abandoned the car. The police traced the car to Speck and issued a warrant for his arrest for burglary on March 8th. An arrest, his 42nd in Dallas, would mean another prison term. So on March 9th, 1966, Speck's sister drove him to the bus station where he took the bus to Chicago, Illinois. So Speck stayed with his sister and her family in Chicago for a few days and then went to Monmouth, Illinois, where he stayed with some old family friends. Speck became angry when he learned that his ex-wife had remarried two days after she was granted a divorce on March 16, 1966. He moved to the Christie Hotel on March 25th and spent most of his time in the downtown taverns. At the end of March, while Speck and some friends were bar hopping, they were detained overnight by police after Speck reportedly threatened a man in a tavern restroom with his knife. On April 3rd, Miss Virgil Harris, a 65-year-old resident of Monmouth, returned home at 1 a.m. to find a burglar in her house with a knife. He was a six-foot-tall white man who was very polite and spoke very softly with a southern drawl, she said. The man blindfolded her, tied her up, raped her, ransacked her house, and stole the $2.50 she had earned from babysitting that night. Wait. So, she's a 65-year-old. She says he was very polite. Very polite and very... How is polite tying you up? I don't know. I wondered that myself. Raping you, ransacking your house, Mm -hmm. and stealing your money. I guess maybe the way he presented himself. Maybe in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So, a week later, Mary Kay Pierce, a 32-year-old barmaid who worked at a tavern, was last seen leaving that tavern at 1245 a.m. on April 9th. She was reported missing on April 13th, and her body was found that day in an empty hog pen behind the tavern. She had died from a blow to her abdomen that ruptured her liver. Speck had frequented that tavern, and the empty hog pen was one of several he had helped build in the preceding month. So Monmouth police briefly questioned him about Pierce's death when he showed up to collect his final carpentry paycheck on April 15th, and they asked him to stay in town for further questioning. When police showed up at the Christie Hotel where Speck was staying on April 19th to continue questioning him, they found out that he had left the hotel a few hours earlier carrying his suitcases and saying he was just going to the laundromat. He had left town instead. A search of his room turned up a radio and costume jewelry Mrs. Virgil Harris had reported missing from her house, as well as items reported missing in two other local burglaries in the past month. So on April 19th, 1966, Speck now comes from Monmouth and returns to stay at his sister's in Chicago, where she lived with her husband and their two teenage daughters. Oh my God, I would I'd be like, sorry, you're not staying here. And then on June 30th, Speck's brother-in-law drove him to the National Maritime Union Hiring Hall to file his paperwork for a Siemens card. And the hiring hall was one block east of the nurse's townhouse. Hmm. Friday, July 8th, Speck's brother-in-law drives him now to pick up the semen card 
July 11th, Speck had outstayed his welcome with his sister. Um, after packing his bags and again being driven by his brother-in-law to the hiring hall to await a job on a ship, Speck stayed the night at a rooming house. So now Tuesday, July 12th, Speck returns to the hiring hall and gets an assignment. By the time he got to the ship, he found out that his job had been given to someone else and he now had nowhere to stay and slept in a vacant house. On Wednesday, July 13th, Speck went to the hiring hall. He was angry for being sent to that non-existent assignment and he, at 10.30, he was tired of waiting at the hiring hall for a job. His sister had given him $25 and he just left and walked a mile and a half to check in at a rooming house. Speck spent the rest of the day drinking in nearby taverns before he accosted Ella Mae Hooper at Knife Point. What's wrong with this guy? She was a 53-year-old woman who had spent the day drinking at the same taverns that Speck had gone to. Speck took her to his room at the rooming house, raped her, and stole her black gun. After dinner, Speck went to a bar to drink until 10.20 p.m. when he left dressed entirely in black, armed with a switchblade and LMA Hooper's handgun. He walked a mile and a half to the nurses' townhouses and committed the eight murders. Now learning that Speck is a suspect, he attempts suicide, because he's a chicken, and the Star Hotel desk clerk phoned in the emergency around midnight on July 16th, and Speck was then taken to the hospital on July 17th, so early in the morning, around 12.30 a.m., and at the hospital, Speck was recognized by a doctor who had read about Speck's Born to Raise Hell tattoo in a newspaper story, and we had mentioned that before, Mm -hmm. that he had that tattoo. Right. So the police were called, and Speck was arrested. On April 15th, 1967, a jury took just 49 minutes to find Speck guilty and recommend the electric chair. His death sentence became, you ready for this? Mm-hmm. 400 to 1,200 years in prison in 1972 after the U.S. Supreme Court declared capital punishment unconstitutional. I'm good with that. That time frame, rather than the death penalty, he doesn't have it easy in prison. Oh, I, uh, I, I'm sorry. You're good with Yeah, I'm great with that. You want the death penalty because you don't, like, in some ways you don't want the system to have to keep paying and uh, for, for these criminals. But I feel like it's almost an easy way out in many cases yeah. for these guys. If you know what he's subjected himself to in prison... All right. I would say. All right. Well, so, so uh, let's see uh, what, wow. what let's see what fate brings. Let's see. Mm, you got to watch the videos too. Okay. I'm gonna try to link those suckers <clears throat> up. But while incarcerated, Speck was given the nickname Birdman because he kept a pair of sparrows that had flown into his cell. He was described as a loner who kept a stamp collection and enjoyed listening to music. The warden merely described him as a big nothing doing time. Speck was not a model prisoner. He was often caught with drugs and distilled moonshine. Punishment for such infractions never stopped him. How am I going to get into trouble? I'm here for 1,200 years. In another interview, Speck tells of a disturbing incident with one of his pet birds. Oh, God. He says, oh. Uh, Do I want to hear this? No. All right, I'm closing my ears. You want me to just not say it? Go ahead. In another interview, Speck tells of a disturbing incident with one of his pet birds. 
He had found an injured sparrow that had flown in through one of the broken windows and nursed it back to health. When it was healthy enough to stand, he tied a string around its leg and had it perched on his shoulder. At one point, a guard told him pets weren't allowed, and Speck said, I can't have it, then walked over to a spinning fan and threw the small bird in. Horrified, the guard said, I thought you liked that bird. And Speck said, I did, but if I can't have it, no one can. All right, that makes me, like, want to cry. Well, the thing, too, is that normally, you know, you always see with murderers and things like that, that people you know, usually injure animals. The weird thing is you don't hear of them being compassionate towards them and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to heal it, and then just out of spite, then just harming it and killing right. it. Like, what a, what a, what an animal. So here's a bit of karma. Oh, good. So in May 1996, Chicago television got videotapes made at the prison. In the center was Speck performing oral sex on another inmate sharing a large quantity of cocaine with another inmate, and parading in silk panties with female-like breasts, allegedly grown using smuggled hormone treatments, and boasting, if they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. Was he gay? Well, he's trying to, like, his survival, his way to survive in prison and to maintain safety was to be appealing to the inmates, so he made himself as feminine as possible and at one point in the video they say do you like having sex with men and he's like yeah and they're like did you always like having sex with men and he's like yeah I sure did and he's like like that's the way he kept himself safe like he wears women's panties and grew boobs with these fake hormone things it's so disgusting to watch the video so they think you know he actually karma is getting it they think it's either the punishment or he's like done it to himself as punishment because he's so disgusted with all the stuff he did, but I don't know. So from behind the camera, a prisoner asked Speck if he had killed the nurses. Speck responded, sure I did. When asked why, Speck shrugged and jokingly said, it just wasn't their night. Asked how he felt about himself in the years since, he said, like I always felt, had no feeling. If you're asking me if I felt sorry, no. He also described in detail the experience of strangling someone. It's not like TV. It takes over three minutes, and you have to have a lot of strength. That's very bizarre. It's so disturbing. Well, here's the good news. (laughs) So, Speck died of a heart attack on December 5th, 1991, and that's on the eve of his 50th birthday. Speck's sister feared that his grave would be desecrated, so he doesn't have a a physical final resting place. Um, He was cremated and his ashes were scattered in a secret location. Don't you find it weird that his family, like his mother got him the lawyer, his sister drove him to like get him out of town when he was getting in trouble. Now she's paying a lot of money to have him cremated. Like, I don't know. Uh, uh, Maybe this, I think the mom probably feels some guilt. I mean, listen, there's a lot of people who lose family members and tragedies happen, but they don't turn into animal serial killers. And I don't know, maybe she, I'm thinking she maybe felt partly responsible because then she brought the stepfather into the house. Well, they did say, and I didn't put this in because I couldn't find 
the exact information, but like four or five times in his childhood, he had like massive head trauma. Mm. Like he fell out of a tree. He, I forget what the other ones were, but he did have a lot of like, so when, after he had passed away, they did find that his brain had, he had, right, cerebral injuries earlier in his life and he was diagnosed with organic brain syndrome. And that is, it just causes impaired mental function. Well, he obviously had impaired mental function. And so, you know, again, when you look at that and you say, well, that, see, to me, that's a logical explanation of why he was the way he was and why he committed the crimes that he did. Because now you're not only looking at the social aspect of, you know, growing up maybe with a dysfunctional or in a dysfunctional situation, but now you're actually looking at physical, physical ailments that probably caused his behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing else. Either that or he was just born that way. All right, so that wraps up our episode from the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. Oh, that's a, you know what? I'm not even going to sing it out. You're not going to sing it out. So that's the, last, the next episode of Nefarious New York. We'll be back with regular episodes based out of New York next. And instead of singing us out with our Nefarious New York, you're going to sing us out with Chicago, Chicago, that's something, something town. You don't know the words? No, I don't. Oh, dear God. All right. That's recording. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> now it's recording. I just my Adam Sandler imitation. <laughs> oh, yes, sorry. <laughs> You've been a good girl. <laughs> I've been a bad boy. <laughs> you didn't know I could do Adam no. Sandler. <laughs> Can I do my Liza Minnelli? Good. I'm not putting this in. Happy days! <laughs> Here again, the skies are bright, are clear again. <laughs> wait, 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 I record this for Bill because he's not even going to believe what we're doing right now. <laughs> Go.